Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's story is about an attorney that sold his firm for one times revenue with cash up front and he got to keep his receivables. And his name is Tom Fafinski. The story is unique to law firms, which are usually victim to earnouts, which makes the story even more interesting is how Tom was able to weather the storm of the financial crisis and create the firm of his dreams. Through diversification in real estate and making sure that he is not a liability to his firm, he is having the time of his life. Tom and I were able to talk about how he made sure that he was not the sole focus of his law firm and how diversification and financial stability outside of the reliance in your company allows you to make better decisions that are not tied to your emotion and not tied to your ego of making the biggest W-2 you possibly can. Besides selling his first law firm for over seven figures, Tom is co-founder of Virtus Law. He's also heavily involved in nonprofit. He is the peer group facilitator for two allied executive peer groups. He also hosts peer groups for attorneys on showing them how to systematize their law firms like he has learned in the past. I really enjoyed interviewing Tom because he's an attorney, but he's also an entrepreneur through and through. Very well-rounded and dynamic individual. I really hope you enjoy this episode. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want to who you want for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Good afternoon, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Ryan? Doing good. I'm looking forward to diving into some of the the wisdom you've got today. And for our listeners, if you can just maybe give them a little bit of a backdrop on why did you become an attorney? What you know gravitated you towards law? Oh, that's such a great question. I became an attorney because two of my brothers were. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, um, I, I love to learn. My passion was kind of real estate, but I love to learn and uh, finished school and I had a, an, an opportunity to pursue a financial services career. And I had one brother that was already practicing and another one that was in law school. The one that was practicing was doing a lot of business stuff. I like business a lot. So I thought, you know what? Worst case scenario, I end up with a law degree and not practicing. I'm going to give it a whirl. Hmm. So I pursued the law degree. I graduated 13th in my class, and it was. And the class wasn't just 13 members. I think it was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think there was a hundred, uh, 90 something or 100 or something. But in any event, um, I. But I came out in 91, and 91 was a really bad recession when mm-hmm. uh, the first war in Afghanistan or uh, Iraq started. Excuse me. It, there was kind of a deep recession, and hiring kind of froze wasn't like the 2008 recession, but that's, then I just hung a shingle. I didn't like the opportunities I was seeing. And so I just thought, well, I'll make my own opportunities. So let's dive into making your own opportunities. So did you start your law firm right after that then? So you decided to go out and kind of be your own individual attorney or like how did, what was the progression? Yeah. You know, I, I, I was in this, uh, I was in this meeting with a guy who was interviewing me to be a collections attorney. 
at about um, 60% of the salary where I just got the job offer in-house. I didn't want to be in-house, so I wanted to be on, out in the private sector. He was uh, wanted me to be a collection attorney, and I just thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that. So I just got out, walked into the lobby. I called my wife on a payphone because that's back when payphones were around. And I said, uh, I, am, I think I'm going to hang a shingle and start practicing on my own. What did you do your first day? I mean, was there a certain niche that you wanted to go into? So, I mean, like, did you just kind of like sit down, kind of shuffle some papers around and then try to figure out the, how to get your first client or what? The first day I was an ex- absolute expert at everything <laughs> <laughs> that walked through my door. Exactly. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I had a few months leading up to it where I was thinking about it. So I kind of had things planned out. I started on May 21st. I was admitted to the bar the Friday before, and I had worked out an opportunity to be in an office share arrangement with a bunch of older attorneys. And when I say older, they were eight or nine years to 25 years older than me. And what I did was, uh, and there was probably 25 attorneys there. And what I did was I told them that I would do anything they wanted me to do at a very discounted rate. So they started sending me work. And it, some of the work was a direct referral, and I would work my tail off for them. Uh, some of it was a direct referral. Some of it I was actually working for them, and then they would increase the bill rate to their clients, mm-hmm. I suppose. But it was it was fantastic. Uh, I joined the lawyer lawyer referral service where they would send you referrals. People call in looking for referrals, and ended up trying my first case six weeks out of uh, into practicing law, which is really cool. No kidding. Huh? What was the subject? It was a commercial unlawful detainer action. So I was representing a bank who was referred to me by a collection agency. They, they had paid the rent, and they were claiming there was something wrong with it, the space, that is. And so we had this two-day trial. It was really cool. And right before the verdict came in, they said, okay, we'll pay the rent. And uh, <laughs> so they paid the rent, and during my closing argument, I had told the judge that it was my first trial, and she said, wow, that's not, I didn't, wouldn't have guessed that. You did pretty good. So I said it when when they said we're we're taking the deal. I said, okay, you just got to tell me where, what was the decision going to be. And they told me I was going to win. I don't know. They probably were just teasing me. <laughs> was it before or after they found out it was your first one? Right, to give them some, give you some confidence. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I did that, and I I actually ended up getting some very good clients from the lawyer referral service and from these other lawyers, and. My first year, I actually did really, really well. And a buddy of mine, I kept in touch with after law school, and when we talked about doing something someday, he said, you know, I think you should stay out on the private sector. And I said, okay, I will, but you got to join me. He was at the fourth largest firm at the time, and people say, I got guts. This guy left a job at the fourth largest firm in the state and partnered with me, and we practiced together for about 10 years. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'm curious how, when you're doing partnerships like that and you're valuing businesses and because you do a lot of M&A work in your current practice, you know, when you're partnering up with a, with an attorney like that and you're ready to, to go in and build a firm. So how do you value uh, the firm? How did you determine who was going to do what? Like what was kind of the conversations you were having with him? Well, he was, he's a, he's a brilliant guy. And so he really uh, brought a, a notch of credibility to what I was doing. I was pretty good at generating business. He was too. And so we did what, and this is before I had children. I was married, but it was before I had children. 
Uh, and so we just kind of worked around the clock. We were one of the first to bring technology, or not not like we were cutting edge or anything, but we brought technology into our practice. So we were using computers when people were still using memory writers, which were typewriters that had mm-hmm. a short memory. So you know we did have some advantage with from a technology standpoint. But we pretty much did whatever. We had so much fun. We Anything that came in through the door, we'd sit and strategize about. We didn't have to build that much time to make it worthwhile. You know, we'd work 12, 14-hour days and probably bill seven. So were you guys 50-50 partners then or because? Yeah, of... we were. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I tried to get 51%, but he <laughs> said no. Hey, you're both <laughs> negotiating. You got you to go for it. <laughs> So then you guys worked for worked together for a decade. And what was the growth like with the firm? How many people did you have? And where did you guys like to practice in the different areas? Yeah, I happened to migrate towards real estate early on. And I think it was just because I was interested in it. People see that you have that interest. They, they send you work in that area or they hang out with you and that type of thing. Uh, he was a bankruptcy attorney. He did debtor reorganizations for commercial setting at the big firm that he was at. So he was doing things like companies coming out of bankruptcy and wanting to reorganize. And so he would get referrals from his former firm because he left on really good terms. Okay. And they would send him things that we could do affordably that the others couldn't. And one of the big bankruptcies that he had worked on was a commercial or excuse me, a residential real estate developer who got caught in 86 with tax law changes and went through a chapter 11 reorganization and came out with about 80 million in real estate and pretty healthy then. So we did a lot of work for that particular company, which really kind of fed into my real estate stuff. So we just kind of did whatever came through the door, whatever opportunity. We were very opportunistic. So if there was something there that we thought we would make money on, then we would seize that opportunity. We pursued one piece very opportunistically that turns out neither one of us were passionate about it. We built a team around it. Our growth went crazy. We went up to, we almost had 30 attorneys at one point, but we were doing things that neither he nor I were passionate about. And one of the opportunities that led to a bunch of that activity was from a business lead that I had. So it was credited to my side where I could control it. And I had made a decision that I didn't want to do it anymore. It's just I wasn't happy with it. What was the well, stuff that you were chasing that you didn't, that you weren't passionate about? It was high volume litigation, high volume, low value kind of treadmill litigation, assembly line type stuff. And we had a friend of ours from law school that we hired that kind of ran it all. And turns out that the referral source for the work was corrupt. And so it really put things really put us into a kettle of of uh, a fish you know when you swim in a kettle of fish eventually you start smelling like a fish well we weren't fish but we sure we sure started to smell like it and it just really killed our passion for what we were doing where were you Uh, when you just had enough what was the what was the straw that broke the camel's back um one of the competitors uh in this uh, particular practice area were just vicious and they had initiated a an ethics complaint against me and it resulted in nothing but i remember sitting in my kitchen with my wife saying if i have to do this for six more months because w- i really turned into a manager of four thousand files <laughs> you know what it was mm-hmm. 
it was just overwhelming. I didn't do any of the actual work, but I just managed it all. And and then I did the stuff that I really liked myself. And uh, so I, I remember saying to my wife, I have to do the manage this stuff for six more months. I don't think I'm, I'm going to be a lawyer. I don't think I'm going to enjoy it anymore. So because it fell on my category of the practice, I was able to control its destiny. And I went into my partner. His name was Tom as well. And I said, hey, Tommy, I don't want to do this anymore. And he's like, don't do it. It's your call. So the termination of that practice area led to, and, and, I, and I found places for all those cases to go. And I found places for all the people that were working on those cases to go with them. So our firm went from about 28 to, I think, 12 overnight. So how does that work, you know, when you've got a partner that you're 50-50 with and how do you split that up? I mean, how did that impact both of your guys' pocketbooks? I mean, what, what did that do to the firm? Yeah, so the, the uh, great question, Ryan. The way we were a, a pure profit splitting partnership 50-50 until 98. And then in 98, we went into a modified version. And the modified version was if you brought in the work, you got an origination fee. And that origination fee was X percent. So there was a big incentive for us to bring in work through the door. We hired a business manager whose job it was to make sure that the firm was profitable after paying the origination fee. And it continued to be like 10% profits or whatever, but it wasn't like the profits from before. So when I made my decision, it did affect him a little bit, you know, maybe five or 6% of the gross revenue, but it really affected, it was more, had more to do with what happened to my side. Mm -hmm. And so he was just, and he's a great guy. We treated each other like gentlemen. I'm proud to say we broke up in 2002. We always treated each other like gentlemen. And so he's like, Hey, if you're not happy with it, don't do it. And so in 2002, um, or 2001, I found the place for all of these cases to go and for all, most of the employees to go. I think I, there was one employee that I wasn't able to find a job for. And I just said, I'm never, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> so at that point, did you actually leave the front? Like, did you guys split ways? Or how did that work from the no. moment that you had the conversation until you're split up? What was the time frame and like what, what ended up actually oh. happening? Yeah, so the decision was made in like November of 01. So my revenue went, my side of the practice did a million something, like 1.3, something like that. And so I was, my, I got cut then. So my, my revenue went down dramatically, but mostly affected my income. Mm -hmm. And then my, I still had my book of business, which was pretty still, is still pretty formidable. I mean, I, I did fine with it for the years up to it. And so then in first months of 02, we ended up buying the building that we were uh, occupying. And at the same time, a mid-sized firm had come in and offered to, or wanted us to merge with them, which was a, a very politically nice way of saying, why don't you guys come join us? Because they weren't really paying us anything and we weren't going to keep our name or anything like that. So um, he was very interested in it and I was not. I had just had children and the idea of being in a firm where I wasn't in control just didn't feel good to me. Mm -hmm. So that was January, February. I said, hey, Tom, why don't you pursue it if you want to? You go ahead and do what you, you need to do. And then later that year, we brought on another partner who was an associate with us and we changed it to an expense sharing partnership. So in the expense sharing partnership, we each took a chunk of what the total expenses were and we paid those. That's interesting because I'm, I'm so intrigued with 
law firms and partnership structures and stuff like that because you know so you do a lot of M&A now at your current firm we can we can talk a little bit more about that in a, in a bit but like I'm curious because you went into business because or you loved business which is why you went into law so you could give yourself some of the the intellectual you know firepower that you need and yet you yeah. go into this legal industry which the valuation of of firms just is very intriguing to me because essentially you've got just a bunch of people that work, right? So you're like, right. you got, you've, you mentioned a, gun, a bunch of different ways that you guys split the profits, but it's all based on just time for dollars. So it is, you it know, is. you know, how do you build a valuable firm and then how do you even transition it? Cause it, all it is is just people that are working and you can't necessarily take like a multiple of EBITDA necessarily, unless there, there's something that I'm not aware of, but what's the ultimate goal with the firm then? Well, like, at that time I didn't see the end. Uh, I just kind of figured I'd just keep working until I saved up enough to, to retire. Uh, the, the high volume, low value litigation uh, was really an attempt to try to build an engine that was more than just about my time. And that did work. Okay. So that part I nailed. Mm-hmm. The you part didn't that like I the didn't work, nail right? is I hated what it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I needed to leave the building once or twice a day just to get away from it. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, it was so it was not that part was not good. So when I went back to me selling my time again, you know, working my tail off, my partner ends up pursuing the firm that you know was asking us to merge with them, and he joins them. So this is. How do you Same break year. something up like that? Then, like, how do you do? You just kind of walk away because you just you've got. I mean, how does that actually yeah. structurally work? Normally, when two lawyers break up, it's a lot of litigation. <laughs> but I can only imagine. When I said we always treated ourselves like gentlemen, we really did. He said, "I'm going to take half the debt. You take half the debt." We had a title insurance company together, and I I didn't want it anymore. And he did. So I was like, oh, yeah, just go ahead and take it. And that was a little before that. So he said, you know, I'm not going to be here to pay the bills in this building. So if you assume the obligations, I'll give you my interest in it. So that was like, oh, yeah, no, that's great. I want to stay here anyway. And we were in Loring Park in an old mansion. And we had subtenants. And it was really fun. So his group went. And he took his accounts receivables from his clients because he he took half the debt. Mm -hmm. And I took my accounts receivable. And the nature of our practice is, his is is a little bit more illiquid practice because in bankruptcy, you have to get your fees approved and all that stuff. And the judge approves them and then we might be waiting once. My practice was far more liquid. So, I mean, I just got a line of credit and just kept going. My mm-hmm. group just kept going. And I wasn't as profitable because I had all those expenses for the first year maybe. But after that, it was fine. But then I was like, okay. This is, I get it now. I got to have repeatable systems in production that create an expected result, but I got to do it in an area that I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. Well, this is 2002, and that's when real estate really took off. And I was now a real estate investor because I bought the building, and real estate just ramped up. So from 01 to, or even 2000, really to 2005 being a real estate investor attorney was really really cool there was a lot of money a lot of stuff um, going on <laughs> a lot of stuff going on a lot of development a lot of builders a, a lot of speculators and they all needed help and here I'd been I'd spent a decade working for folks like that and doing a good job and I knew a lot so and now I was a, an investor and so I got a lot of work during that phase. So about an hour and a half before 
the real estate high. (laughs) (laughs) Before the residential real estate market took a turn, I would say it took a turn in the latter part of July 2005, right after the spring markets and all that stuff, it started to turn. Well, that's when I had sold. And I didn't sell because I was some brilliant guy or anything. I sold because, well, it started with my daughter. You got time for a little quick? Yeah, yeah, I want to hear it. Okay. So what was going on was I'm working around the clock because I'm now the business manager too. I am also the sales and marketing guy. I am also the production guy because all of that went away when I killed the big giant practice that I hated. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't afford to have all those things. So now I am working. When the printer goes down, they came to me. Tom, what do we do with the printer? Not kidding. I mean, I was doing everything. Uh, proving all bills that went up, signing all checks and all that stuff. I would, and I worked downtown near Loring Park and, or in Loring Park, and I would stay down at the office until the, the evening rush hour ended. So I would leave at around 6.15. So I was never home for dinner when little kids have dinner, which is like 4.30. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so one day I was going to be home and my daughter was setting the table and she said, my daughter's name is Natalie, and she said, who is this for? Oh, my gosh. I know. Heart crushing, huh? Oh, my gosh. Those three words absolutely rocked me. My wife shared it with me with the idea of, you know, you might want to try to, my wife has stayed home at the time, you know, you might want to try to be home more often. But I, I mean, it was like, it was like Mike Tyson clocked me with an uppercut. And, um, and what, what you, was this around the 05 time frame? This was 04, okay. yeah, late, later 04. So putting that many hours in, you're in a unique attorney, the fact that you actually know you got to build an engine and build something where you're not trading your dollars for hours or your hours for dollars. Were you building some sort of new engine or was it just to create cash for the family? I mean, what was the end goal when your daughter asked this question? So the engine, the, I thought the, the systems piece, I thought, okay, the thing I got to build are, are production systems so that the work can repeat. Um, so, and I could hire lawyers and scale. So I would get my thought processes to the lawyers. They would then come up with work product for me to screen and approve. And so that's the part that I worked really hard on. I did not work as hard on the production, or excuse me, the finance and administration side of the business, uh, nor did I work on the sales and marketing because, quite frankly, during that time frame, all I had to do was answer the phone. Because it was I mean, such it a was, boom. It was such a boom time. It was so cool. And I did two things. I worked for real estate investors and technology companies, and both of them were skyrocketing mm-hmm. during this time frame. I happened to have a lot more real estate guys at the time. Now I have happen to have more technology folks what did you do when your daughter asked that question like how did you go home how did you face her and then how did you yeah. what, what did you think about where you're staring at the ceiling laying in bed after that yeah you know it was um it really it really shook me we my wife and i were married for almost 10 years before we had kids so it was i was you know 35 years old and i'm like god I, it's there's got to be something more to this than just working around the clock so I just decided I needed to put a plan in action. I'm a very much a planner guy. So my thought was I'll sell my building, I'll do a 1031 exchange into an investment property, and then I'll move say, where I'm not the tenant, and then I'll move my practice to within a few miles of my home. And that's exactly what I did. I put my property up for sale, and Loring Park had taken off, and I had, it was really 
cool. Um, the value doubled of the building that I had. And I had gotten into the building with no money down because we had locked in a purchase price based on an option with our lease. And so I didn't, I mean, I had no money in it. Suddenly I got a mid six figure result here. One of the tenants in the building had, uh, it was a small partnership. They approached me about buying my practice. And, I was, and that was the first time that I thought about it. I'm like, well, what are you, what are you talking about? How would you do that? Uh, they were startup nice guys. They said that they could get SBA funding and that I might have to help a little bit. You can do SBA um, funding to buy a law firm? No kidding. Apparently, that's what they had told me. I thought they didn't follow through with it. Interesting. I mean, they did. They tried to, but the, they couldn't get the the uh, lending. Mm-hmm. But they created. They they said this is how we value your practice. We value it at one times revenue, and that's that's like seven figures. So, and you get to keep your receivables. And I'm like, okay, well, I got to make sure this is a, a a correct valuation before I consider doing it. So I went to a business broker a friend of mine and asked him about that value. And he said, you know, accounting firms at the time were trading at 1.15 times revenue, and but law firms really don't trade that much. So, you know, that's probably, that's probably true. That's, you know, one, one times revenue is probably about right. So that's how I went about it. So when they came, they went through and tried to buy it. They worked really hard. And then it came, and this is still in 04. The building is selling now. I had secured a, a lease in a Class A space in Egan, two, less than two miles from my house. And I had applied some income shifting strategies that we still use for clients to create additional value in the building that benefited the buyer as well. Uh, and the building went through and I had become a tenant. So now I'm a tenant in the building, as is the tenant that's trying to buy me. Uh, and I've got a few months in, uh, to do my tenancy. And then I was going to buy out the tenancy. And then they came back and they said, it's not going to work. We thought it would, but it's not. A few months later, I run, I, the, uh, the business broker that I talked about, or maybe it was six weeks later, calls me up and says, hey, I just wanted to see whatever ended up happening. And I said, ah, well, you know, it didn't go through. They couldn't get their financing or whatever. And, and he said, well, you know, would, are you still interested in selling? I'm like, if I could sell for one time's revenue and keep my receivables, heck yeah. I mean, why wouldn't I do that? especially if I can work there too, if I chose to. Because at this time, I had put some things together. And a couple of the things that I figured out, Ryan, is that the people that I served, the folks that were multimillionaires, most of them were in real estate. And so I figured it out. Like, okay, well, does you don't have to hit me over the head with a Louisville slugger. I got it. So I decided I was going to explore more of the real estate stuff. My thought was that I would sell the practice, maybe practice a little bit, but really use it as a launching pad to purchase additional buildings. And so I did uh, pick up a few apartment complexes at about uh, right as I was selling the practice. The broker had a guy that was uh, from a large law firm that was interested and it was apparently something he wanted to do and he went through due diligence and pursued it. So in July of 2005, I sold the law practice. I had already sold the building a few, six, five, six months before and replaced it with an office building. And shortly after I closed on the law firm, I bought my first apartment complex 
And then shortly, six within six months, I had a second apartment complex. So you actually sold your practice. And I'm just curious, the fact that they valued it at one time's revenue and you could keep your receivables. And most of the time, whether it's a CPA firm, a consulting practice or a law practice, there's mainly because you're the, you're the one that's producing the income. So uh, how did that agreement work? I mean, were you tied to the business for a certain amount of time for you to get that uh, one time's earning or how did you guys structure that? Well, it was uh, it was money up front, uh, so it was, everything was up front. My continued relationship took on a new configuration. I could stay there, and I was essentially a commissioned salesperson. I would get paid for new work that I brought in based on whether I originated it and based on whether I did the work. So if I originated the work and did the work, I'd get paid more. If I just billed time on it, the client paid the billable time, then I would get a portion of that too. I wouldn't get anything for the legacy clients for origination. So mm-hmm. all legacy clients went to the buyer. The buyer did not have any plan, strategy, or anything to make contact with all of the clients that he purchased. What the heck? I mean, so... Is what, that crazy? Well, yeah. And like, first of all, like there's a lot of different crazy points in that. Where One is like, I'm just thinking if I'm a business buyer, when you're looking at it as an investment opportunity, like why do they want to buy you? Yeah. He was second generation wealth. And he was at a large firm, and I think he didn't like the pace. And he looked at what he would make if he owned my firm. And truly, if he would have ran it like I ran it, he would have had substantial increase in his compensation and be able to service the debt and have it paid off in five years. So for him, I think it was he wanted to get out of the big firm pace because his family had money. I don't think he was so worried about other pieces. But I mean, on paper, it should have worked just fine. Was he not as aware of the fact that he was going to have to work as hard as you were working in order to make it all work? Uh, right. So instead of transitioning the clients, which I begged him to do, in fact, there were two key clients that I said, these people account for 30 some percent of our revenue. The legacy clients, you got to at least meet them. I was begging him. I mean, what the heck? You know, I was just a, a commissioned employee essentially at the time. Mm-hmm. But I, I did get him to to do that. First, uh, one of our land developer clients, so he was a victim of a couple of things. One was because we had such a concentration in real estate, when the real estate market started to topple, he got hurt. Technology got hurt after the Great Recession in 08. But his big problem were he did not hold himself accountable, he did not hold the employees accountable, and he did not hold clients accountable. So the clients... Uh, he would extend way too much credit. The employees, I ran it with four lawyers. He brought it up to seven or eight. Other partners uh, or just attorneys? No, just attorneys. He did bring in partners after I left, but just attorneys. But he would not require them. Well, he would not enforce the requirement that they maintain a certain billable time amount. So if they billed 80 hours, he was he wouldn't lay people off. In a law firm, they got to be billing 140-ish mm-hmm, type of mm-hmm. hours. And he would just let it go. And then he didn't hold himself accountable in that he didn't really originate work and he didn't want to manage the firm either. So he hired somebody to come in and manage the firm and act as a business manager, which is something I had been doing. What was it like as you were watching this all happen to your firm? Oh, God. You're watching your baby die. Like, oh, my God. (laughs) This is terrible. (laughs) I mean, like, how how did you handle it? Describe the feeling as you're walking in the door every day watching that happen. Uh, I felt really bad for the people that were working there, especially the employees that were there from uh, my, you know, that that I brought on. I felt like uh, 
They trusted me. One of the reasons why I wanted to sell was to create opportunity for associates because I was I was at that stage where I wasn't going to grow my firm more than the four lawyers that I had. Because if I grew it, that meant that I would have to go out and work hard to bring in more work for the new person. And I would have to train that new person. And remember you know, my Natalie story, I wasn't going to do that. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was really difficult to watch, and I, these people that I wanted to create the opportunity for were very unhappy. How did you deal with them being unhappy? Did you, you know, take responsibility, or what were you saying to them? I did. I I listened. Uh, so sometimes it it, w- it was just about venting. I didn't start really joining in until the latter part of '09, I think. But yeah, I would listen to him vent. I apologized. One of the things that I was looking at was taking another job. I was too young. I mean, I was 40-something years. I was too young to not work. One of my clients had offered to match my comp from my years of being a lawyer, not, not my current comp, but what I was making before, if I would come run his company, which was a wonderful opportunity. But if I were to do that, you have to really work hard. And then I'm back into that whole thing with mm-hmm. the Natalie store. And I didn't really need the money. I needed a, maybe a little, but for the most part, the real estate portfolio was doing just fine. I needed enough from the law to replace the property management function that I would have been doing in the real estate stuff. So I needed to make 40 or 50 grand a year, something like that. So I was talking to my peer group about it a lot. And John Palin, who runs Allied Executive, was my peer group director. And he offered me the opportunity to facilitate in peer groups. And so that's was going to be my exit then. I was like, okay, I'm going to get out of the practice and they're going to continue and I am going to send them work and all that stuff so long as they do a good job and then I can exit. Nobody will lose their job. Then in the 08 Great Recession hit and Allied could not onboard enough groups to uh, keep me busy or, or at least enough for me to be comfortable with it anyway. Well, in 08, I grew my expenses a little. We moved out to the country and then in 09, after the Great Recession, my commercial portfolio started to crumble. And now I really needed, I needed to get paid. So the guy that bought the, the company, he would, he would miss payroll for me and not say anything. We just miss it. And, oh, jeez. And after a while, you know, two months would go by and I'd say, hey, listen, you really got to pay me. And yeah, 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 I'll get it caught up and then he'd pay it. But starting in later part of 2010, I could see, I could project out based on my commercial tenants, vacating at one big commercial tenant leaving. I would really need to be ramped up and making a lot of money. So I went and talked to him and said, hey, listen, you know, you got to pay me the money that you owe me. He did owe me a substantial amount that he wasn't paying. This is salary related because he paid you the one times revenue up front, correct? Yep. And then you you invested that into your commercial properties. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Most of it. Some of it I didn't. Yeah. I still had some other stuff, but. But the stuff that he's, he's laid on is the, the, the wages for your work that you've been doing and the commissions or the, the people you've been bringing in. Correct. Got and it. for the first time, I really need, is all new work, all paid and all this, but I really need to make, I need the, the money to come to me. Mm-hmm. I increased my personal expenses a little, like I said, and my commercial portfolio was starting to take a hit. I could see it coming. I mean, it was a storm out in the distance, but I knew it was coming. The tenant told me they weren't going to renew and it was a big big number. And he was just simply saying, I'm not going to pay you what I owe you on this one particular matter. 
and I'm just doing the best I can on these other things. And then we got an unlawful detainer action brought against the firm because apparently we hadn't been making our rental payments, <laughs> which was news to us. So then we start going, okay, something's going on with the law firm. It's not financially healthy anymore. And it, as it turns out, his refusal to pay was an inability. So Nathan quit and Nathan was the best guy the smartest guy that I was working with. I did not want to be there without him there. I was like, oh, time out. If he's out, I'm out. But the, there's something I really learned during that phase of being a seller and an employee. The part where I loved being a solution engineer, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, Ryan, because you were in that sector, in the technology sector, where they call it solution engineer, mm-hmm. where it's part sales, part creation of the product that creates the solution for the client. I loved it. It was great not to have to worry about the delivery as much as the strategy for delivery. And so what I saw in Nate was the ability to continue that and really do it effectively. So I learned a ton. I learned, actually fell in love with being a lawyer again because I took away all of the finance and administration, took away all of the production issues. And now I could just really focus on creating solutions for clients. And that was your, when you're an employee, right? Because you're just now out, not concerned with all the, the back end stuff. Absolutely. It was just, it was so great. I worked a, a reasonable amount of hours. I coached for seven straight years around the calendar. I coached basketball, baseball, and then a couple of times football. It was just so much fun. was present for everything. I mean, obviously it, you, you, your daughter asking that major yeah question had a lot of impact but i mean did you miss being the the one in control and having all the the, uh, shots being called under your uh, watch um i miss getting my way Uh, i did not miss having to implement my way so you know when you were saying that you you get the storm brewing the financial crisis that is just i mean Curious on how that impacted your, your real estate portfolio. You would obviously cash flowing that. You would sold the, the firm. So you're kind of dealing with a lot of different change at the same time. Yeah. How were you resetting and putting the puzzle back together? Would all these things that you'd gone through, you know, what were the, some of the things that you learned and how were you going to change them as you were going to plan out the, the next venture? You know, I could see what was going to happen with the building. My apartment buildings were not doing great. They were doing okay. But I did need to make money as a lawyer. Otherwise, I'd be dipping more into savings. But the need didn't really occur until about late 2010, 2011. And I could see out that far. So it was um, it was scary. My lenders were one. My main lender was uh, in trouble and being acquired. And they were making their problems, my problems, even though I wasn't in default on anything. But what really scared the heck out of me, Ryan, is when my partner, Nathan, left my apartment. When he left the practice and said, I quit, I'm not doing this anymore. I was like, oh, I can't, I don't want to be a lawyer without this guy around, especially in the environment that I was in. So now going into Virtus, I'm, I'm now in it where I don't need the money yet. You know, I'm still 10, 11 months away from needing the money. Um, and I, but what I really need is to keep my life the way that it's worked, where it's still enjoyable and I have life balance and all that stuff. So I've got a lot of runway to do this the right way. So Nathan was a good player in that, where he understood that he, if he was the managing partner, 
that we would have somebody uh, handle production, that would be him, and that we would have an, a finance and administration person, and that I would work on the sales and marketing components, and that we would have this very balanced approach. And as our firm has grown, we've had multiple practice areas where each practice area has its own manager that reports to Nathan as the as the production manager. It's very intentional. It allows me to do the part that I really like, it allows Nathan to do the part that he really likes. I mean, I've, I'm in love with being a lawyer again. It's about the passion, right? And you, your ability to find what you like to do is is awesome because it, it takes a lot of people a lot of challenges to find out that they don't want to be doing what they're doing every day, where they just have their head down and they're grinding away for 30 years and wake up and go, I don't really like this anymore. And I found out it was 20 years ago I didn't like it. Right, right. <laughs> And so I do things now that, I mean, I just am in love with. You know, the peer group facilitation is a dream. I love it. Uh, We do it now. Nate Nate and I do it for a national law firm organization where law firms at a national level are trying to figure out how do I run my business and make it more like yours so that it's a real business, that it's a real engine that has, you know, leadership in each of the three silos and has uh, scalability and repeatability. Tell me a little bit about that because I think that is, you know, the number one thing that law firms struggle with is to create value in there as a, like an entity. What, what are some of the unique things that you've done for scalability, repeatability, and creating value for your law firm? So we have a flat fee-oriented practice, which is based on value-based billing. So we're looking at generating a return for the client. So if you go into a manufacturer and you say, hey, I want to sell you a piece of equipment, you're going to be able to pay off that equipment in 34 and a half months based on the savings that it generates for you, you'll probably get a sale. So it's a return on investment philosophy. Um, it's a sales strategy. You'll probably get the sale. So we use those same pieces where we calculate for them what they're going to save. For instance, I've built a product called the Legal Assessment, and the Legal Assessment is a product that we guarantee that they will save more in income taxes than it will cost them for us to do the assessment. And it's like a health checkup. You know, people go in for their physical every year, mm-hmm. uh, but they never have a physical for their organization from a legal standpoint. But as defensive coordinators, we go in there and we, and we say, this is how you're going to protect your wealth. This is how you're going to minimize your taxes. You're spending too much money on insurance, for instance. You don't have enough diversification. You got to harvest some of the wealth out of your practice out of your business and push it into an investment vehicle so that when you do have what I had in 2010 where I needed huge amounts of money to keep my portfolio going, you have access to draw upon it. You won't become a liability to your business. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the great lessons I got from the whole downturn. Can't become a liability. That's my one key is I didn't become a liability to my business, which was which was huge. Let's peel in the sergeant trial. Let's go into that because I think it's it's a very important point that I want to accentuate because I think that's a major common problem that a lot of entrepreneurs have. So when you say becoming a liability, is that for the uh, tribal knowledge that they have in operations or financially or, you know, in your definition, what do you mean by that? Normally it's due to arrogance and stupidity of the business owner who says, why would I pull a hundred grand out of this and not give it to Ryan uh, each year to manage. When I'm making 25% return in my business, why would I ever consider pulling money out? And the, and the reason is because if you keep plowing the money back in, your business might grow faster, but it's also going to fail faster. And if you don't have that diversification, then 
when there comes a time where the business isn't successful and you have to make some decisions that are going to affect your income stream. Remember I said when I was a seller, I was looking at his business saying you should do these things and it didn't have a financial impact on me, but it did on him. So business owners then make decisions based upon their need for money. And then they become opportunistic and doing things that they're not passionate about or outside of their culture for the temporary duct tape and band-aids to get through this difficult time that they're experiencing. That's really, really insightful, I think, because we were in that same boat and you have these emotional decisions because it's your entire livelihood stuck in this asset (laughs) and how, how your decisions are made become very different if whether you need it or not. You should have cash flow that can take you through two ordinary years of your spending. So if you spend 100 grand, then you should have 200 grand saved. If you spend 200 grand, you should have 400 grand saved. And then you should also have a plan where you can cut down your spending by almost 50% if things get tough. You know, live your life the way you want to live it. Have enough to pay for it for two years straight, but also have a plan for scaling down in the event that you have to. Because that your business, you should be making decisions that you know, most of the time you're going to make a decision that will pay off within four years. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you the four years. And if you don't have that, then you're just becoming a liability to your business. It is that challenge where if you got a hundred grand to go hire an extra salesperson and turn it into 400 grand is just almost too more, you know, it's way too appealing compared to just throwing it onto the sidelines. Well, and I think you've had a very unique perspective on it because you've actually been able to sit back, look at the long game from the the security that you've had in other areas too. So it's a great perspective because I think there's a lot of people that could use that that help and that advice. My wife now manages the properties uh, for us, and uh, we had we had a property manager until the recession. One of those things that we did to scale down and be able to get down to the fifty percent of our expenses mm-hmm. is she took over property management when the kids were were in school. So she's just doing great on her side. That even creates far less pressure. Now I really, truly, I I don't, my exit plan, Ryan, this is so cool. My exit 12 years ago has caused me to not want to have an exit anymore. So I'd have to push back a little bit because your exit plan is just to to work and make sure that you've delegated your duties, right? And having the structure of the firm set up so you can transition. I'm assuming that's what you meant by that, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. No, I mean, because right now, if I have, you know, somebody comes in and they've got an estate issue, you know, we talk about what type of design they would like, uh, what values they want to perpetuate to the next generation, and then I come up with some things that could do that. And then I go to a very capable attorney in my firm and I say, I had this wonderful two-hour conversation with this really smart, intelligent person. This is what they wanted to do with their estate. It's really, really cool. Here, can you make this happen? And they say, yeah, sure, Tom, I'll bring it back to you. And after they get it done through Nathan. And then I get another deal that, you know, somebody calls and says, hey, I want to buy this business and here's what it looks like. I'm like, oh, well, there's an opportunity here for a tax. Nathan told me something about this one tax opportunity here. I don't have to worry about paying bills when the printer breaks. Nobody tells me. (laughs) (laughs) So my exit from you know, wanting, I, I really wanted to be a lawyer and run an enterprise that really runs itself. Oh, and cool. so that's what it's, it's really been, it really has been wonderful. I love it's it. It's been a wonderful journey. So if, yeah. as we kind of wrap up here, what, you know, if there's one piece of that journey that you want to highlight, or if there's one thing that you think you, you wanted to, to bring back up, what do you think it would be? 
you have to attain that financial independence from the bill, uh, the business from a year-to-year piece. There's this tendency where people measure themselves annually. And it's funny, you probably see this all the time in your industry, right? You know, how much money do you make? Well, I made X dollars this year. You have to be financially independent from your business so that you can be a healthy addition to your business. Once you become a liability to your business, then you, all the decisions that you're making are about preserving your need to do things on a, on, a, on a month-to-month basis. I've got to be able to make X dollars so that I can pay my mortgage and tuitions or whatever it is that you're paying. And those the decisions take that into account. And kidding yourself if, if you think you're not doing that, if you don't have the money set aside. And then you got to stop measuring yourself on how much money you take home and start measuring yourself on how much net worth you've created. What your W-2 is means nothing. You have cash flow burdens that you need to accomplish. You need to make these cash flow obligations each year. You shouldn't try to make much more than that other than what you're going to diversify from. So if you need a hundred grand a year and your business is kicking out 500 and you're taking all the money and paying Uncle Sam, Uncle Sam's portion and spending it, even though you don't need to, what you ought to do is you ought to say, I'm going to take that hundred grand. I'm going to put it in my pocket, pay my bills and live skinny. And I'm going to take the other hundred grand that I think I need to build my nest egg for, so I'm not a liability. I'm going to give it to Ryan and let Ryan invest it. And we're going to take the other 300 and I'm going to stick it back into my business, and that's the thing that I'm going to grow my net worth with or buy a building affiliated with the business or something like that. I appreciate you being on the show, Tom. I loved the conversations. If there's a way for our listeners to get in touch with you, what would be the best way? You know, our uh, law firm, 612-888-1000 is a way to connect with the law firm. Or you can send me an email, Tom, T-O-M, at VirtusLaw, V-I-R-T-U-S-L-A-W.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Ryan, for the opportunity.